Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be amazing. Whether you're a long-time listener or first-time, five-star reviews are lovely. And I just might read yours on the air. How about that? Um, A lot of big things happening. Uh, One of the biggest is um, I have a book coming out. It's titled That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, and it's going to be published by Bombardier Books, Post Hill Press. So that's coming out later this year to stay up on release dates and all that. Please check out my newsletter at theluperez.com, and you can also join my community at theluperez.locals.com. If you haven't been on Locals yet, uh, if you join up, you get to listen to my podcast early. You'll get to watch my sketch comedy early. And also you have access to exclusive content and me. If you're looking for other ways that you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. If you're into CBD products, please check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. And if you use promo code Lou, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you're into cold brew, check out Black Organic Cold Brew www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. All right. I think that's about it. Let's go. Early on when I started my podcast, I made the mistake of having a, it was probably the, one of the best 15 to 20 minute conversations and then I check and I say, we're not recording. And the guy, yeah, that, the, hateful. Oh, the, the guest, he was, he was such a good guy. He's like, oh, that's fine. I could, I could do it again. I'm like, all right. It's man. never quite the same, is it? No. You know Robert no, Louis no. Stevenson's map for Treasure Island? When he, he drew the map as well as wrote the book and he sent it off to his publisher and his publisher said, yeah, this is great. I mean, it was not completed. He said, yeah, finish it off. And, um, and then he lost the map. And they, they've never, it's never been rediscovered. There's, there's a map in the, in the front piece of the, of the book that is, that Stevenson did as much as he could from memory, but it's not the original. There isn't, and I, it's one of my, um, kind of national treasure sort of fantasy scenarios is there, that map exists somewhere. It's probably tucked into the leaves. You might go into a secondhand bookshop in Edinburgh one day and find a, a an old copy of a, uh, an Edinburgh almanac from 1768 or something, and there will be uh, there will be Stevenson's original map tucked into it. You know, I think I think there's a feature film right there. You know, just just I have tracking it down. About it. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not a real treasure map, but it has that it has that obviously that that kind of um, frisson as as if it were a real treasure map. You know, and and whether I mean there are all these kind of science fiction scenarios about who pops ideas into whose head in those sort of um, Douglas Adams wrote a great one about uh, how it was that Coleridge came to get get distracted halfway through in Xanadu. Do you know that poem? Oh, yeah. Yeah. With um, it. Does he mention, or is it the Lotus Eaters is a different one, right? Or is it? I a, think the Lotus Eaters is a different one, but you're okay. right. He was into all of that, yeah, that yeah. stuff. So he was it, yeah. He was in an opium dream, and then it, and then he he dreamed the whole poem entire. But then he was halfway through writing it down, and got distracted by a man coming to the door. But um, Douglas Adams wrote a scenario in which he was deliberately distracted because uh, there were. There were uh, alien entities that knew he was onto something too powerful so i can't remember the exact details but yeah uh, yeah well it's it's funny you bring um you, you know you bring up stevenson because uh i have where is it 
So I, I have, I'm surrounded by books. I finally got my home office in good shape. And I have way more books than I will ever physically be able to read, you know, totally. but they're, yeah. but, but they're there. And I don't know. It's, it, it is something really wild that I'm able to just, you know, walk over a couple of feet and pick up history, you know, and, yeah. and pick up and, and, you know, if I, if I had the time, if my, if my kids weren't around, I might be able to sit down and, uh, and, and actually read it. Uh, uh, it's a, it feels like that's a um an overindulgence nowadays doesn't it with the physical books you know yeah. what they like some old uh, the, you know, there's a certain generation that refer to it as dead tree publishing or whatever which i find really annoying which suggests that they're onto something i feel like they've definitely touched a sore point there because i i've too have accrued vastly i mean like orders of magnitude more books than i will ever have a time to read or even to browse meaningfully yeah but there is something about owning the book, making a decision to purchase a book that kind of incorporates it into your mental library even before you've read it. I've, I do mm. feel that you you make a small but, but significant movement towards synthesis with that book just by owning it. You know, it, not, nothing like as much of a synthesis as I would like to believe. But <laughs> I, I was in a, I was in a, the world's biggest or certainly the London's biggest bookshop today, Foils, which I don't go into that often. And it used to be um, notoriously hard to navigate, but they, it's become more conventional recently. But it's, it's still huge. And um, I was thinking, you know, this is just such a fantastic like uh, it's like an ocean you can swim in, you know, mm-hmm. and just and just get a sense of how much information, knowledge, and indeed fantasy and all the rest of it there is that you don't get by just like going down Wikipedia rabbit holes. You you don't really get that same sort of sense of of the vastness of of human learning and and mm-hmm. um, and it's it's really lovely to have a little like a little paddling pool size version of that in your own home as well. Yeah. And, and, um, and also, you know, to look at the books in the historical context that they came out, because, you know, yeah. uh, by, by today's standards, we, we would pick up, you know, lady, uh, Ch- uh, what's it, lady Ch- Chatterley's lover, um, or Ulysses. And we'd be, <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's nowhere in comparison to what we're able to see on Pornhub. Yeah, but, right. but we it's go almost ba- impossible yeah. to believe Ulysses was banned for obscenity, isn't it? It's extraordinary that. Well, and that's an, yet another one that I have on my uh, on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, um, but you know, I'm, hopefully, I see something in, uh, in was it Mister Bloom and his um, day trip and uh, yeah, yeah, Leopold his, Bloom. It's Leopold that's right. Bloom. There's a day. I think it's the 16th of June that people still celebrate every every year. I'm sort of vaguely aware of it when it happens rather than really celebrating it, but it all takes place on the 16th of June. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, uh, one of the cool things my, my wife and I did uh, on our honeymoon, we went to uh, uh, two countries. We went to France and then we went to Iceland. And when we were in France, it was going to be my first time in Paris. So me being, uh, you know, a, a fan of, of literature, I had to go to Shakespeare and co. And, you know, to, uh, I'm a, such a huge fan of uh, Ernest Hemingway's uh, short stories in particular, and I read A Movable Feast. So to be walking, you know, through, and it's not that big of a, it's not that big of a shop, you know, no. to, to be walking through and to know that, you know, Ernest Hemingway was here and Gertrude Stein, I think Joyce popped in and, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald was, uh, you know, was there. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, the, the, these are real places and the, like, they hold, you know, almost a uh, uh, 
a supernatural architecture becomes in a way. Well, you know, it's interesting that because in my experience, 90% of the time when you try and achieve that, when you visit, make a pilgrimage to a place, it, it can be an anticlimax. But bookshops, mm. for some reason, they stay alive, don't they? They they hold it. They hold the – the only other one that I've been to that isn't a bookshop, there's a, there's a cafe called Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich where people like Joyce and also I think Lenin and I believe Freud – and the Dada movement all kind of congregated. And it can't help but be a bit of a museum of their having passed through, but it but it still functions as a sort of bookshop cafe. It still feels pretty rock and roll. There's a lot uh-huh. of um, sort of gummed up posters of uh, anarchist, you know, rock groups and what have you. And, I mean, it's obviously weird because Switzerland is like the just the most obviously high-end alpha, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> corporate stroke uh, capitalist like the most perfectly functioning oiled machine so it 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 feels like it's a bit of a uh, a, a token gesture on Zurich's part to sort of well, fence well, that well if you're you know i think if you're going to be a revolutionary if you, uh, if you want to plan a revolution do it in style go to a yeah, place yeah. that you know go to a really posh place and you know enjoy the food and you know let the let the revolution happen you know in your mind absolutely absolutely and i'm sure even like at 1900 and 1910 that that zurich had that vibe too i don't think it's it's not somewhere that's kind of like singapore that's only just sprouted in the last few years i think it was long understood to have that mm. it, it feels like a real hub but um, but yeah paris has places like that as well they're wonderful and um i did go to one in uh, in san francisco where there's a um a famous one is it city lights yeah i think so and and, and i think they it, it was a, a a publishing house too i think that they may yeah. have published some of the uh, uh ginsburg and stuff and, yeah and Fer, um lawrence ferenghetti who, who i think yeah i think he just passed away he was like 90 something but I have to last, be honest, I yeah. suppose I was a, more of a tourist there because they're not, it's not really my favorite kind of literature. I used to enjoy Kerouac, but you, you, you kind of get the vibe, whereas that whole Paris scene was, was a bit different, wasn't it? Did I, you see Woody Allen's film Midnight in Paris? It was quite an interesting... No, 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 I, I haven't It's I haven't an interesting that. exploration of the fantasy because essentially it's a, he, a man discovers a wormhole that allows him to visit 1920s literary society in Paris at will and he gets okay. to know young Hemingway and, and Fitzgerald and I can't remember who the love interest is but um, maybe Anais Nin, I can't remember but um, he then gradually he lets on to them that he has this wormhole and they all want to go back 50 years and visit Toulouse-Lautrec huh. <laughs> and the impressionist and the kind of theme that emerges is that there was always like a golden generation for, for whoever you know yeah, that they look back and think oh if only I'd been born then nobody's going forward nobody's going to the future no no that's yeah. a good point actually I don't know I don't feel a huge amount of um, confidence or enthusiasm for where literary art will be in 50 years time it feels like it's almost expired already but but having said that other things come through all the time new ways that people can express themselves so i think that is part of the um part of the you know the way we shed our skin isn't it our lobster shell or our spider skin you know mm-hmm. i wonder if uh, and I'm, I'm sure that this you know is dependent on the individual whether or not someone wants to go forward in time into the future or or back in time and I think for me, I would be more comfortable going back in time because going forward, I'm, I'm going to be pretty sure that everyone I care about is probably not going to be around. Then also there's just the, the unknown about what's to come. Whereas going back in time, it's almost like 
uh, even if you're the worst, you know, student of history, you have a general idea of what was happening back in yeah. the 70s or, or you know, go <laughs> back in the early 1900s. And uh, <laughs> so you get, you kind of go back with, with, I guess, more wisdom than you would, you know, kind of going forward. Well, it's a really good uh, illustration of what the nation, nature of wisdom is, isn't it, to some extent, because... If if you were to go back, I mean, if it were just to be a long weekend, you know, I could definitely pick out a few places I would love to go back and have a long weekend in, right. you know, Renaissance Florence or or uh, or, or maybe watch, um, you know, I'd like to stand next to Hegel and watch, you know, uh, the, the world spirit on horseback riding past. But but there are there are, if if you were to actually re-enter history at that point and then live out the rest of your life, then oh. you have a, a whole different kind of collection of. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, clamoring confusion. I, I remember when I was about twenty-five, I, I, through a sort of bunch of circumstances, I wasn't really in control of. I ended up doing a ten-day meditation retreat in Nepal. I was already traveling in that part of the world, just like kind of taking, you know, allowing myself to blow like the the, the breeze, and um, and got talked into it. And uh, anyway, this uh, the kind of guru who ran it. It would be done in total silence during the day, and then in the evening you get you get like a recorded tape, an hour long uh, discourse from this guy S. N. Guenka. His name was. He had a wonderfully deep, resonant voice, and uh, I think a Southern Indian, and clearly quite an intelligent and wised up kind of individual. And um, and they were very funny. This discourses they were just taking the piss out of you most of the time. <laughs> you would kind of go. So what have we learned? Monkey mind, chattering mind, cannot be quiet, can it? Monkey mind, chatter, chatter, chatter. <laughs> it was like really you, amusing. you with the beard. What are you hiding under the yes, beard? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's like what? <laughs> I loved him, but um, well, one thing he really emphasized was, you know, it's a well-known aspect of Buddhism and, and similar uh, meditational, meditation-derived belief systems is that attachment is the, is the root of all suffering. And he said, in particular, attachment to just the way things are, and, mm. and 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 aversion to change. And he said, this is a this is bound to lead to unhappiness because everything changes, everything is in flux, everything falls away, and even things that appear to you to be solid and reliable are no more so really than a cloud that you stare at, and one minute it, it reminds you of a dog, and then you realize it no longer reminds you of a dog, you know. And that's that's just all it is is a question of the scale of time. And I remember thinking in my mid-twenties, so I don't care. That's fine. Let things change. I have nothing that I'm clinging to. You know, I'm I'm up for that. That sounds great. Uh, otherwise, things will get boring. But now I'm in my mid-fifties. I feel a little bit differently about the world. I think about that yeah. quite often. You know, there are things that are falling away and changing that I can't seem to can't seem to hold on to. And I don't just mean my kids growing up. That obviously is something you sometimes think. You look back at old photos, you know, when they were at certain ages, when you you realize perhaps you didn't stop enough and and really pay attention, right. and those years aren't coming back. But but also just, you know, epochs in our history, um, aspects of social cohesion that that uh, 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 seem to be evaporating now, and um, and I don't have any way of holding on to them. You know. Yeah, I I, I recently watched the um, the documentary uh, Get Back. Uh, about the yeah. uh, the making of of Let It Be, did, did you happen to see that? Did you? I watched about two hours out of the five, and yeah. I mean, like full disclosure, I like the band, but but it wasn't my favorite period of their their music, and I, oh, okay. I, I've never been that fascinated with how they fell apart. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, and 
what 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 really uh took me took me aback from uh from get back was it was so intimate just the world that i was being led into like i was i was spending a lot of time with the beatles you know and i, and I watched the uh, I, I watched the whole thing in its entirety and something that that really stuck out was one uh paul mccartney's work ethic uh the man was just constantly writing and fine tuning and all that and then uh the camaraderie with all four of the guys joking around, you know, and while writing, you know, what, what's considered some of the greatest, you know, music, but also what, what stuck out to me was I think Paul was maybe 26 and he was writing these songs where lyrically it seemed like an older, more wiser man was writing them. It was almost yeah. like he, he had a sort of a, um, um, a wormhole, you know, if you will, you know, to, to a much more mature man, because even, even going, you know, before uh, the get back album, you know, a song like yesterday, you you have a kid in his twenties writing about the longings for yesterday. And it's something that it's unnerving that, isn't it? Those lyrics, especially, I mean, the tune came to him in his sleep. I think his, 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 I got his book for Christmas. so I haven't opened it yet, but uh, you know, the lyrics, the big sort of hardback thing that's come out, but um the thing about McCartney is his 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 gift for melody was so absurdly divine. I mean, he's like the Mozart of pop that um, mm. that it sort of obscures some of the other aspects of what he might be trying to say with the music, or how how uh, in, experimental and interested he was. He was the one who was more interested in the French philosophers, wasn't he? Continental philosophy and stuff at the time. I know John Lennon is always associated with like stop the war and ban the bomb and social issues, but actually McCartney was much more intellectually curious at that time. He was an, an absolutely extraordinary individual. And because he's all like thumbs aloft, you know, and you know, <laughs> he was the good looking one and the, the one that the girls felt safe with, you know, and he had the big <laughs> shaggy sheepdog and stuff. It obscures a, 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 a pretty extraordinary mind, really. I think he was one of those people who managed to conceal an, an awful lot of, of intelligence and, and curiosity and, yeah, wisdom, definitely. I mean, he was 24 when he commandeered the whole band, essentially, which would have fallen apart otherwise. Lennon was totally, like, blitzing himself on LSD and God knows what else uh, and produced Sergeant Pepper, which is yeah. which is which just remains in a, you know, just such a unique artifact in 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 20th century culture let alone like uh, inventing a whole new possibility with with guitars and drums so yeah you don't do that just out of like bonhomie and uh right. and, and a knack for a good tune there was something pretty pretty special going on with him well, well there's a, there is something to you know the um uh the ability to experiment or the the willingness to experiment that is something like sergeant pepper and i think um you know you being a, a comedian as uh, as well um i i don't think enough people you know can really understand just how important it is to have an environment where you're able to experiment try new things fail and yeah. and and see what happens uh where there seems to be you know a lot more uh, stuff seems to be a lot more sanitized. Like we're getting more experimental when it comes to technology. Like I'm sure we're going to have a, a human animal hybrid in a few years. Uh, but <laughs> no, I don't Alex know. If Jones will tell you we have them already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So some of them right now they're all in the, you know, they're, they're, they're oh lining God, up. The coming in. Yeah. Um, 
So we're going to see that kind of experimentation. But as far as, you know, possibly seeing, you know, another, you know, Sergeant Pepper or or something that's yeah. you know, of equal, you know, stature or that, that world. Pe- people experiment early on, don't they, when they have less to lose? I mean, personally, as a stand-up, I started, I, I was in, like uh, doing improv just for fun, really, because that's all you can do improv for mm-hmm. in, in the UK, really. And somebody said there are these kind of um, workshops where you can try stand-up comedy just in front of other people who want to try it out and you just go along and it's a little safe space, you know. And I did it there and um, and that was how we, we did it early on. You, you know, you would write a piece and maybe one or two bits would get a laugh and, and lots of it would fall on dead air, but but nobody cared because they were all... And afterwards, they would give you, hopefully, constructive feedback about why they had not gone for that bit you know and you learned as much as anything else who you were in their eyes as much as whether a particular joke was funny it was finding your your viewpoint you know it's finding where people understood and felt you were authentically coming from but of course once you get to be you know once somebody's paying you a few grand to do a corporate you tend not to uh, (laughs) take the risk of skating out into the thin ice you know and um, it's it's extremely important that as comedians and or any other kind of creative um, uh, endeavor, you you have to have places and times and uh, ideally, you know, parts of the calendar year that are set aside for um, for going somewhere and, and taking huge risks. Mm-hmm. And as you say, ideally, in in a room where people can a capable emotionally and intellectually of providing useful feedback about why why they responded the way they did you know those are yeah. extremely valuable rewarding but it's funny i mean i'm listening at the moment um i listen to a lot of audio books rather than read these days because I, I just find it less tiring and i'm listening to this one um this is a kind of history of philosophy history of the greeks mainly it's called uh, the dream of reason and it's quite interesting just how badly wrong most of them were <laughs> you know right. it's kind of Huge names like uh, Protagoras and, well, even Plato, you know, who are um, held in, in, in almost godlike esteem, ironically, given that that's what they were kind of trying to pick apart. Um, we're just way off beam loads of the time. Well, well, any, anytime someone uh, talks about, oh, he's a philosopher or he's a philosophy yeah. major, I'm like, yeah. okay, but but what does he believe? Let's yeah, let's yeah, talk about what yeah. his actual beliefs are because, um, you know, it's it, I'm not to take anything away from philosophy majors, but... You know, you could skate by in a, in a university. Uh, well, my know, wife could... did philosophy at university, and, and without any disrespect to her, it's not how I would categorize her now as a philosopher. She works mm-hmm. in public relations. I think possibly she learned some some communication skills, but, um, I mean, rhetoric is arguably a part of philosophy. But uh, I think – I don't know how many people who study philosophy are encouraged to come up with their own original ideas. I have a, a sad suspicion it's not a major part of the course anymore. Mm. you know and 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 let alone kind of really just flinging paint at the canvas and seeing where it takes you you know yeah I, but so much of important innovation is like that it's not just in the creative arts not just like uh comedy or, or music if you want to make a better steam hammer you know you have to be mm-hmm. able to fail a thousand times yeah yeah when we, if, if anybody wants to look at um you know patent records and you'll you'll see like oh so and so invented this and then you look it's like no so and so uh you know, made some adjustments on this other uh, invention and so on and so on and, and so on. Exactly that. Exactly that. And then one or two people, usually with a good PR, kind of uh, remembered 100 <laughs> years later as being the guy who invented. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, extraordinarily slow incremental improvements uh, made over a hundred years very often with things that we think were invented as such. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting that guy who's been um, what's his name um, the uh, the bearded uh, mRNI guy that Rogan had on his show. Oh, uh, Malone is it? Robert? Malone, yeah, is that's it? it, Robert Malone. Yeah, and a lot of the the degree to which people are trying to delegitimize him is that he claims he invented mRNA vaccines, and they're like nobody invented them, and you know you're you'll be, and he may well be exaggerating his his contribution, but it's interesting how that can become in itself a a political lever one way or the other, depending on mm. whose side you're on, you know, whether you uh, assert somebody has the right to speak or whether you undermine their their um, their claims to some kind of inventor status. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the popular things now is uh, if you say something um, that, you know, kind of goes against the grain, you could be asked, well, are you a doctor? And then yeah. when you turn that around and you ask the other person, well, are you a doctor? It's yeah, sort of, yeah. you have, now, now, now you have two people who aren't doctors <laughs> arguing over whichever doctor they choose to cite, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's all we, that's, I mean, that's all any of us can do in the world these days, isn't it? It's, I mean, yeah, you can read somebody who, um, who's been struck off, you know? Somebody had a number of patients die under them. Well, then you can legitimately say, "Okay, this guy's record is not great." But um, but most of us can find at least a doctor who agrees with us, you know, or is willing to support that. With as far as the COVID thing goes, there yeah. are plenty of doctors in the UK who don't think that you should be like issuing vaccine mandates. I mean, that for that's just like a, a very straightforward one, you know, literally thousands of them signing petitions saying they don't think it's right and proper. Mm. So you can always find people who will support your view. And um, yeah, the appeal to authority, they call it, don't they? But uh, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing when it crops up on Twitter, you must've seen that where people kind of sure. hi epidemiologist here. <laughs> <laughs> right right okay well i've been i you know some sometimes you come across people especially on on twitter where for one you want to ask you know a professional an md why are you even spending time on twitter especially if they're spending <laughs> most of their time just yeah. fighting with people because uh you know the the goal of an internet argument isn't to win it's just to waste the other person's time and you can yeah, be yeah. wasting um but I, I think recently I saw an MD who she, I don't know if she was bragging about this, but she had a teenage son who I guess he rolled his ankle and his ankle was all messed up. And rather than bring him to a doctor or urgent care, uh, she was basically just going to ride it out because she was afraid that he would catch Omicron, the, uh, the Omicron variant. What, just from I, being in the waiting room, sort of thing. Just from being in the waiting room, or you know, uh, or just being among uh, other people. And this mm. was a doctor. She's a you know, she's a blue check. And I just, uh, as, as somebody who I had a baby uh, at, in 2020 at the height of of COVID, so where when it was still alpha, this was alpha COVID we were talking about. Yeah. And at that point in my life, I was so scared, so paranoid, and just 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 reaching out and just trying to find any good news that I could possibly find. And then when you have good news coming in, it's like, Oh great. I get to like, I get to live my life. And now I have my, yeah. the two, I have my two jabs. Wonderful. I feel more comfortable going out and, and all that. And now we're at a point where because of this Omicron variant that 
this woman doesn't want to bring her child to a doctor for for his ankle. Meanwhile, this, this kid is, you know, I, I guess if you look at the numbers, he's going to be okay even if he gets it. And also, yeah. he's probably going to get it at some uh, at some point. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you almost want him to get it earlier. Uh, yeah, because yeah. it's yeah, it, it keeps going in a straight line, doesn't it? It's. One thing this is this is this is obviously illuminated is the degree, the the, the wide spectrum, I suppose, of of uh, different risk uh, mm-hmm. and response, you know, that, that 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 humans are capable of, and it doesn't seem to necessarily correlate with your professional experience. You would think a doctor would be able to say, "I can understand why people are afraid of Omicron, but I've done the reading to right. that very basic degree that I know a twelve-year-old boy or whatever is not going to." you know, uh, have more than a nasty cough for a couple of days. That's, that's the most it'll be. Yeah. But it's, it's clearly something much more emotional than that. I, I, I wonder whether it's always been there or whether it's a human thing or whether it is, it would be quite easy to make a case that we, it's elevated by exposure to 24 hour news cycles and so on. You know, mm-hmm. the, I'm sure you've heard of the amygdala, which is, the, you know, oh, the little yeah. part of the brain that was just always sitting there waiting to be activated by social media and, mm-hmm. you know, moral panics of one kind or another. But clearly, you know, mankind has, has had these kind of things before. There was one, what was it? I remember where it was. I think it was in America. I think it might have been in somewhere like Oregon where a, um, a panic swept around the town that, that there had been like a, a a lake or a river had broken its dam and the place was about to get flooded and everyone everyone just panicked and, and left town and went and sat on the mountaintop and three days passed and and clearly it wasn't it nothing had happened you know mm. it was it was just a rumor that had got out of out of control and had never been um, verified and nobody had bothered to follow it up and uh, and they all just kind of sheepishly returned to their houses <laughs> yeah <laughs> never spoke of it again <laughs> you know it just feels like a very easily mapped onto our present situation kind of story. <laughs> I, I could imagine somebody saying, well, look, we, you know, we put the work in, we left the town. We got to knock yeah. that dam down. That yeah. dam has got to be knocked down. It's got to come flood, <laughs> flooding through. Um, uh, uh, recently, I, I listened to, um, I believe we have a mutual friend, Brendan O'Neill from, uh, yeah. from Spike Magazine. And Brendan had a really great conversation on his podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, with uh, Carl Hennigan. And uh, Carl, uh, towards the end of the um, uh, of the podcast, he said, uh, "Quote: When people are enacting on society behaviors that reflect their own risk, so and and he was saying it in uh, to describe what, what we what we've seen over the past two years with responses to COVID, where you have people uh, and the way that he put it is like a lot of the people who are in charge tend to be in a higher risk category." for uh for covid and therefore they are then enacting all of these different policies even on people who aren't in that risk category i, I think I, there's I think an even more it. pernicious like dynamic in the same vein but uh mm-hmm. kind of in reverse which is that those same people tend to have jobs which are less at risk by mm-hmm. the enactment of the policies that they that they um are keen on and that isn't just the government and that isn't just the the uh the, the medical community it's most importantly it's the uh it's the media you know those people who sit mm-hmm. on the on the couch on the tv screen and say listen you just got to stay home it's what's it's not so bad just stay home work from home watch the tv you know for a few right. weeks while we flatten the curve and 18 months later they're still asking you to do that 
and you think your job is, if anything, you are in higher status now. Your your status as a as a TV host, daytime mm-hmm. TV host, has been elevated by this panic. Whereas a lot of people who rely on, you know, serving cheese over a counter or something, have 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 just felt their their world fall apart. But they have no status, they have no purchase, and they have no voice. And it's not to say anyone is being evil, but like as you as you're saying, it's just it reflects their own priorities and their experience of the thing they're not they're, they are not threatened their their status and their earnings are not threatened by lockdown and that's those are not people who should be making that call yeah and, I, and i've seen other uh other people uh, you know who look back and say if we had just paid everyone to stay home for three weeks if we had just paid everyone to stay home for three weeks and it's well they're obviously not talking about the doctors, the nurses, yeah. The, yeah, people, yeah. the people delivering food, the people the delivery food. drivers. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, if you pay just, I mean, if, if you can even afford to pay everyone to stay home, well then things stop moving, you know, things, yeah, yeah. The, the, the things we all have leave. that fantasy. I think it's kind of like, you know, Joan Didion with the, the year of magical thinking that we all have kind of magical, that we start making bargains. What would have, what would happen if we all just went into suspended animation? For a moment? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And just kind of uh, just get by on fresh air for a bit. I mean, to be honest, if we if the government had just furloughed everyone who could conceivably be furloughed for three weeks, and then we'd eased it back, I, that wouldn't have been the worst thing that could happen. I mean, that was kind of what I was braced for in a way. What it was when it went on for eighteen months that I couldn't mm. quite believe that we had, you know we had fallen for that. But now there are new normals that pe- some people seem to want to adhere to, and. Um, I, I get the uneasy feeling that some people are really quite comfortable always wearing a mask now on public yeah. transport, that they are never going to feel that it's it's safe to take it off again. You know? Well, there was a study out of, uh, was it Cardiff University, that uh, 43 women found um, people more attractive for, with wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah. You, I, it, it's 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 real-life satire. It's real-life... Uh... Yeah, that is really odd, isn't it? I think there are certain kinds of masks that can make people attractive. Obviously, you know, you're kind of <laughs> Venetian sort of, you know, those like the, with a lot of lace and a <laughs> like, kind of cat style. You know, I can see that. There is there's something about anonymity, but not like those kind of just like 90% of the masks that I've seen people wear just look so weirdly sort of dysfunctional even as masks you yeah know? yeah <laughs> yeah also they don't the, look like they're form fitting they don't highlight anything they look as if they've probably been coughed into from the other side you know it's horrible well well, well, that, well that's the thing i think the um the one of the lead i don't know scientists who um who, who did the study or, or the polling um he said that the reason why is uh the women were uh associating masks i guess with uh either health or a lack of disease. But, you know, me just knowing how I treat my mask yeah, when yeah. it's it's in my pocket and then it's coming up. Yeah. It's 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 I know. You walk out, you leave the house some days and you go, Oh, have I got a mask? And you start fishing in your pockets to see if there's an old mask yeah. in there, right? It's well well for, for me it's it's almost <laughs> the equivalent it's almost the equivalent of like uh you know women finding condoms on penises more attractive. <laughs> It's, it's exactly like, it's, like that. It's like, yeah. okay, it, it doesn't read, you know, it, it reads healthy or, you know, no disease, I guess. I mean, I understand why women would find clean fingernails attractive or washed right. hair, you know, but this is it's moving way into the pathological zone that, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you, you wonder how much of it, like even the idea that, that somebody would do a study like that and, and like it was only 43 women. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like, oh, you are a part or you want there to be the new normal. You want this to be the new normal. And then the newspapers will will carry that study because yeah. they want to kind of support that notion as well. Yeah, it's it's quite sinister. I mean, it's hilarious, but also quite sinister. And you know, I'm sure you're. Uh, I say I'm sure you may not be, but are you a fan of Jordan Peterson or uh, yeah, yeah, moderately? Yeah, he, he's a very controversial figure. Obviously, I, I think sort of a lot of people willfully misconstrue what he's interested in. But one thing he certainly is interested in is the rise of Hitler and and how it came about, and. Um, he gave a very interesting lecture. This was years before he was famous when he used to just put a camera at the back of his lecture uh, theatres in um, in Toronto uh, about the degree to which Hitler's disgust reflex was a huge part of his personality and that, and that that drove an awful lot of his thinking, that he he was motivated by a physical, visceral dislike of dirt under fingernails, dirty hair, uh, infestations of vermin and so on, and that he... Peterson and I both obviously have to emphasize, although hopefully it wouldn't need saying, but he wrongly associated that with with Jews. With Jewish I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to cut know, that yeah. out to make it seem like Simon and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Disgusting anti-Semites. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, and certainly that was kind of how he how how he sold it to some extent as well. But. Um, but he made this point, and it's chilling because it's long before the the, uh, the the recent pandemic, that at times where people fear contagion, when they become uh, uh, aware uh, of, of disease and contamination in their in their neighbourhood, they veer massively to the right politically. They they suddenly start seeking a strong authoritarian rule that will clean up the neighborhood. That whole kind of clean up the neighborhood, which is kind of euphemistic for lower crime, but it's not a, It's not coincidental that the terminology used is really that of hygiene. That's how people feel it and experience it. And, you know, we've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and something that I, that I keep reminding anyone who will listen to me or will read what, I, what I'm writing and, or my tweets and, and all that is if you don't have it, you can't spread it. If you don't have it, you can't spread it. Because, so, because it, when you when you uh, look at just the way people have um, approached masking, the idea like if someone's not wearing a mask, therefore they have to be infected. Or you know, recently in the United States, uh, there's some stupid controversy about the Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch. Uh, didn't wear a mask and I guess all the other uh, justices were wearing a mask or one justice ended up uh, doing a zoom meeting. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know what I case saw that. She, what, she, she said she'll be doing it from home from now on because Gorsuch won't wear a mask. Yeah. But, but apparently, uh, but even on that, apparently there's uh, there wasn't any fighting or arguing even among them or asking him to put on, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. But, but the reality is if he doesn't have it, he can't spread it. And we right. have, tests that people are taking if if you want to go to that if you want to go to that level and and this one of the one of the silliest things to come out of uh vaccine passports you know when we were uh you know when people were debating whether or not those were uh uh, those were a good idea or legal uh to begin with is well now you have people who are vaccinated who are infected who are still catching this 
So just showing a vaccine passport doesn't even mean that you're not infected. Uh, no. You know? It's it's really intriguing the degree to which they they fudge and obfuscate and I, I've never seen anyone give any kind of clear indication as to what extent being vaccinated lowers the chance of you being a carrier of being a vector. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to believe it might do a little bit, but nobody seems to be willing to share any kind of statistical evidence. So I have to be a little bit skeptical. It certainly isn't an, a binary on off, you know. Right. Yeah, and this is why I think you know it's the same with with Djokovic, obviously, which was uh, the most recent example where he clearly wasn't a victory. He wasn't a threat. It had been established. Not only did he not have it, it was established that despite not being vaccinated, he was full of antibodies because he'd actually he hadn't been vaccinated, but he caught it for you know quite recently, and he was full of antibodies. So he was zero I, threat. Oh, I didn't. I didn't they know that. He- I didn't know yeah, that he yeah. had the antibodies. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he totally does. Yeah, I mean, he he had tried to. Uh, I think that there, there was, a, I don't know. There's some evidence that he might have tried to pull a fast one with the visa form or whatever. But he was certainly, by the time you know the row had reached its climax, he was certainly in the clear. So, um, yeah, they they said that they didn't want him. He had become a sort of focal point for the anti-vaccination mm. movement. I guess that is also. The issue that this judge has with with Gorsuch that he is he's somehow kind of making a making a kind of totem of himself somehow as a sort of he's he's, he's almost like I don't know he's, he's like he's kind of parading his his right. mouth you know, what, what, what obscured facial features well yeah you think some th- sort of offense some sort of uh, some sort of insult to polite civil society. Yeah, if people, you know, if people really worried about, you know, um, others be, becoming like the totem or the, you know, the uh, avatar of of the anti-vax movement, the people they really have to be worried about are all the people who caught COVID and lived, yeah. you know, because because all those people, they, oh my God, you can catch it. it it's possible that so many of these people caught it and lived that, that that's not well, good marketing. Lit, like really shrugged it off. I mean, it's a right. problem. Again, Rogan is the key one with that, isn't it? Where he right. not only caught it, but he then used his ivermectin. <laughs> I don't know where. I doubt it made much difference with him. I think it would have just bounced off the sides either way. He's in fantastic shape. People know. wanted him to die. People yeah, wanted maybe. him. Or at least to be humbled. At the very right. least to be humbled and begging, you know, the no atheist in a foxhole kind of moment. That's what they wanted. Right. That's what they wanted to see, you know. Yeah. Will he convert? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he did. He did not. Uh, he did not do so. Well, the other one, of course, we've all forgotten was Trump, who <laughs> was helicoptered off to the hospital. I can't remember what it was he took. He had some kind of there was there was some was it Remdesivir or something that was there was some kind of semi experimental treatment for it that he took and it absolutely rocketed him back out again. I he, think there was a degree yeah. of uh, risk involved. My, my, Three days later, he's back there, kind of. <laughs> my, my country has been through so much um so much it's just been it's been incredible and yeah we forget about yeah i forget about those times like the guy uh, while he's running for uh for all you know running for re-election gets this disease beats it yeah and then we just forget about and just move on to uh yeah 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 beat it really quickly because johnson meanwhile boris johnson our prime minister he was touching at one point yeah well I mean, some people don't trust the information that came out. I'm inclined to trust that that he was. They were the information management did their best to stop anyone panicking. But there were moments that was very early on. It was only about three weeks into 
into our first lockdown. And there were moments when you thought this could cut a sway through the whole of the ruling classes. You know, they're mm. the sort of people who go to lots of parties, shake lots of hands, lots of air kissing, you know, and uh, it, I mean, Prince Charles had it as well. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it, sort it, of a- it was scary. That was quite scary. Like that could have actually really undermined people's, uh, not just confidence in, in the medical uh, infrastructure's c- capacity, but, you know, that's actually, it's almost like feeling like a child again, isn't it, when mummy and daddy are fighting or something. Do you know what I mean? When you, when you, if you start to see half the government going down. Right. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 like it's not if, normal. If, if even, yeah, if even they can get it. Uh, was it Edgar, yeah. Allan, Edgar Allan Poe has a, the short story, Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, I exactly. I thought of that many, many times. Yeah, that's where I think Australia is still at at the moment, really. <laughs> Maybe not not the uh, not the vainglorious dances, but the the attempts to keep the castle gate locked. I, I really, yeah. I really appreciated. There's um, the uh, editor of um, Quillette, Claire Lehman. Um, she got a lot of backlash because I think you know she was uh, standing up for her country and their. Uh, uh, and the way that they've been handling lockdowns and all that. Uh, but I, I really appreciated she shared a bunch of pictures of women in, um, uh, in quarantine uh, in bikinis. Uh, yeah. They were, they were having a great time. And, you know, I could, I could understand if I was, if I was a young woman, beautiful woman in my twenties, you know, in a, in a bikini outside in Australia, I think I'd be all right too. Yeah. It does feel like it's a slightly better place to, uh, to sit it out. Doesn't it? I, I don't know. It's, I mean, as you probably know, I wrote that piece for Spiked about about the Djokovic situation, which I tried to keep as as kind of focused on matters of principle rather than detail, because mm-hmm. you just don't know. Different countries experience things different ways, and right. it's so easy to sh- share a little bit of of social media footage and think, "Oh my God, there's terror on the streets!" You know, somebody mm-hmm. getting clubbed with a rubber truncheon or something. Uh, uh, you know, just for not having a mask on. And then you learn it was something else entirely. You can't trust half of half of what or, you or, see. Or you learn that it's, or you learn that's from ten years ago. And, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like trying to you know try to uh, relive that. Well, what is it? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, so uh, you're a columnist for Spiked, um, mm. and and I've um, um, I've written for Spiked. Uh, at, for, for those of you um, who aren't familiar with Spiked Magazine, uh, please go and support it. Uh, it's uh, it's fantastic and. Um, uh, I describe myself as every now and then when they want a guy with a funny accent uh, to yeah. uh, write something, they, <laughs> they, they pick, uh, they pick me, they pick the Yankee uh, to go do that. Um, wh- what is it like, you know, being, being English, but then writing and commenting on so much of what's happening outside of England, whether it's the United States well, or Spiked Australia. Is, is a tremendous platform. I find they, they, I wrote a few pieces that, that come, I think I was writing for something called the spectator, which is a little bit more uh, has been the house magazine for the ruling right, I suppose for quite a long time for the mm-hmm. conservative party since I think about 1770 or something like that. Very old established magazine. Spike has a much more interesting and, uh, uh, checkered past. It started out as something called Living Marxism many years ago, and it has a, an, a it had a, a quite an extreme left, or at least the people who, who run it and launched it um, were on the extreme left. But they have um, evolved, I think, and become genuinely interesting, questioning, anti-authoritarian, but not like lo- ludicrously libertarian. I don't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't kind of, bra- or indeed, I wouldn't bracket them with like kind of Charles Murray libertarian uh, thought and certainly not a Michael Malice sort of anarchist thing. They are, they just question um, any attempts to limit human freedom and question their legitimacy. And, and 
I think it's a really excellent platform, and I was so chuffed when they when they invited me to to write regularly for them. And the other great thing I find about it is just zero interference. I mean, I don't mm. think I've ever written for anyone where there's been so much editorial freedom. You know, there's one or two things I've pitched to them, and they've said that isn't quite us. That's different. But if they ask you to write something and you write broadly according to the brief, then it goes in. You know, which is yeah. just is just fantastic. And uh, and at pretty much any length you want as well, you know, which is great. Obviously, that's an advantage of the digital platform, but still, it's uh, it's it's quite indulgent. So, I mean, I find it really, without any exaggeration, I think it's a huge boon to my own mental health. To be honest, to have a yeah. you know, and I know that's that's quite um, that's well, that's nice for me, but not everyone can have that, obviously. But uh, to be able to write at length and kind of get my own thoughts in order, the experience of writing a thousand words on on a, a hot topic of the day is just a. I don't think there's any better way to organise your own swirling, you know, mental weather. Uh, yeah. and I just feel much calmer and better afterwards. And then and then I have a like forty eight hours when I have to wait for it to actually be published. And then I am a little bit antsy. There. I, I get the same way. It's the same, uh, you know, the excitement. I'm checking, uh, you yeah. know, refreshing yeah, yeah. Twitter to see if they're yeah, they yeah, exactly. It out. Oh, there it is. There it yeah, is. Yeah. What have people said? Oh, oh, how dare they? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but, yeah, it's fantastic. And I mean, all my favorite writers. Um, certainly kind of thinkers, you know, uh, whether they, I mean, I listen to Christopher Hitchens essays a mm. lot. He's probably my, my hero in terms of uh, pro style and just organizing a column and just keeping it funny, but putting in lots of uppercuts and straight jabs, but also a little bit of tickling as well. You know, he's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. I wouldn't agree with him on, on a, a lot of political issues, but that almost feels by the by, once the moment has passed, you know, you're always just looking back at the history and just seeing that it's just a glorious unfurling tapestry the whole time. And um, I just think it's a great um, discipline to try. It's a, it's a great tradition to be a part of in a tiny, tiny way, in the same way that as a stand-up, I'm, I'm part of a tradition that, that mm -hmm. in, included many of uh, the most vital curious uh energetic minds of my generation and now this is a, another one you know it's wonderful yeah i think Hitch hitchens is definitely one of those figures that a lot of people say i wish he were around because i can only yeah. imagine what he was and and i think a lot of the people who say they wish he was around to comment don't necessarily know what he would say, what his commentary no. would be. It would be very yeah. original. And uh, I know that came out, especially during um, uh, during the, the 2016 election in the States, uh, Trump running against Hillary. And then also, you know, obviously through, um, through Trump's uh, term. Uh, and uh, I'm not too sure which side Hitchens would have come down on because he loathed, loathed, Hillary Clinton. He, yeah, he, yeah. He wrote, he wrote a whole a book. book about it, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, right. I mean, so the, the the idea of having, I mean, this is, I mean, this, you know, to some people, this would be just sacrilege, but the idea of of Hitchens in his beautiful tan suit with a with a red MAGA hat on, I mean, there's just <laughs> there's just something there that. Um, I wonder whether he would have gone. I mean, he was famously going on that journey, which concerned a lot of people as far as radical Islam was concerned. I mean, he was really taking no prisoners there. And the Middle East generally seemed to have swung into being an unapologetic hawk. But yeah, Clinton up against 
Okay. It would I mean, it's been very interesting watching a few people like Glenn Greenwald, who um mm. I didn't really pay much attention to until the last couple of years, to be honest. You know, I knew what is he'd broken with Snowden and stuff, but um I was not that wasn't my one of my chief occupational uh, interests. But it's he's not alone in having Greenwald in having gone on that journey and starting to think that the the great mass of liberal media and the attempt to control the narrative and Silicon Valley and their uh, their increasingly kind of dictatorial approach to their own platforms and so on. I wonder whether that would have been something that Hitchens might have been. He might have been in that mm. vein. That's that's one possibility, I think. You know, but there are other people that um, I suppose he was broadly and in alignment with. I don't think he would have been that keen on the inter inter what do they call it the the dark web. The intellectual dark web, or was oh, it? Was uh, that was it, you know uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the Peterson and Sam Harris and all of that? Those guys. I think that's disbanded, especially. I think it has. It flared up briefly. It was one of those classic examples. Barry Weiss, wasn't it? Who who named it that? Or at least I think she was interviewing Brett Weinstein and he suggested it, or maybe Eric. Oh, Weinstein. Eric, yeah, Eric. Eric, right. There's a there's a great guy uh, called Parkinson, Cyril Northcote Parkinson, who was a, a sort of thinker and economist and a bit of a humorist in the uh, in the fifties, who wrote a book called Parkinson's Law. Have you ever heard of that? No. no. Parkinson's Law itself. There are about twelve different laws, each one illustrated with um, a short sort of essay. The most famous one, which is usually just referred to as Parkinson's Law, is that work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. Have you heard of that? No. But can you so say that one more time? work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. So if you think you have a deadline to finish a story by Thursday, it will take until Thursday to finish it. But if you have until this afternoon to finish it, you'll do it this afternoon. And it won't be necessarily better or worse. He applied that actually to the size of departments, which there was his his original observation was that the Admiralty, as it was called, which is the, the sort of civil service, the bureaucracy in, in the UK that was concerned with the running of the of the Royal Navy, was continuing to grow after the Second World War, despite the fact that the number of ships they had was shrinking dramatically. In fact, they had one of the world's great navies as we went into the Second World War, and it was now, you know, very much running on a on a, a, a yeah, skeleton budget. But but the uh, civil service was was continuing to grow, and he said, "How can they find any work to do?" And he investigated it, and he found <laughs> that they just create their own work. You know, the more mm. people you have, the more interconnected they become and the more things have to be signed in triplicate and so on. Anyway, another one of his laws, which is the one I was thinking of, is that as soon as you name something, as soon as you identify it, and especially as soon as you give it purpose-built premises, you have effectively killed it. It's it won't go, it won't continue to grow in the same uh, way and it and and it might even immediately start to wither. And the, I think the intellectual dark web was a very interesting uh, natural outflowering and interconnected uh, development of alternative voices and thoughts and and uh, heterodox opinions. But as soon as it became the intellectual dark web, it, its days were numbered. Yeah, and and if uh, it was already you know definitely waning o- over the years, and I think the. Uh, infighting over uh, um, responses to COVID, I think that definitely just put the put the kibosh. Because yeah. I know there's there's sort of a uh, a, a, trif- a, a a kind of a a, a love triangle of um, uh, Brett Weinstein, Joe Rogan, and Sam Harris, who have all on their respective podcasts kind of been 
uh, taking issue, I guess, with uh, with everyone. Actually, I don't know if Joe Rogan yes. is, is taking issue with uh, with either, but um, I know Harris and and, and Weinstein. Uh, Weinstein Harris came sure. out very strongly against Trump as well, didn't he? I mean, he kind of lost his mind slightly about he, Trump. I think you know, I, I have to say, they um, there was a, a fantastic podcast episode that I recommend uh, everyone should check out. Uh, it was between Sam Harris and Andrew Sullivan, and hmm. they spent uh, probably around two hours, maybe a little bit more. And the first Harris's hour, network, or yeah, yeah, on, on yeah. Uh, I guess it's a uh, waking up. Uh, yeah. with Sam Harris and the first hour was all the reasons why you shouldn't vote for Hillary and they went out they they tore Hillary apart and then the second hour was why you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump and I think they really did such a wonderful uh, a wonderful job um, you know having that discussion you know bringing those arguments to the fore and you know, two respected guys who both, you know, both respect each other and two people who also despise Trump, but could also, you know, show what was wrong with Hillary. But I think after Trump won, I think it was sort of, you know, yeah, uh, it, yeah that, that was it. So. Just give me one sec. Sorry. Yeah. Wife came in from book group. Dog wanted to join wife. And so. Do you know? Do you know what? Do you know what book? Uh, what book they're reading? Do they tell you? Yeah, I do actually because she wanted my copy to to borrow. It's uh, David Sedaris. Remember? Him? Okay. I don't know if he's. You remember him? Funny guy. Yeah. 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 So new, yeah. Me new one. Pretty one day, which is oh, me- at least fifteen, maybe twenty years old. I think. Yeah. About yeah. Him learning to speak French. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite an interesting choice, partly because it's quite an old book, and also because it's not very. Um, uh, open to endless uh, discussion. I would have thought it's just very, very enjoyable and funny. But man, I guess they like to keep it light. I, uh, I, my wife and I, we uh, we watched a documentary the other night about Jackie Collins, uh, the uh, yeah. sister of, of Joan Collins, and a world-renowned, uh, I guess, romance erotic fiction writer. And uh, it was yeah. a great documentary. It was. Um, uh, Boss lady, the boss lady, the story. Of, she was, of Jackie she Collins. was absolutely huge in her day, and it's one of those kind of names. I guess it's that kind of genre where people just flare up and then it's gone. You know, ten years later, nobody it's, remembers. Yeah. But yeah. she wrote books. They were kind of, they were erotic, but they were also a little bit Ayn Randian. You know, they had that kind. There was always that sense that there were certain people in the world who just, you know, used the power of their determination to cut mm. through to get what they want. Once we start talking about Jackie Collins and erotic fiction, um, my camera uh, cuts out. Sorry, okay. mate, lost you there. Yeah. You're back. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. You're, um, you're frozen on there. I but- think it was me, and I don't know what happened. I don't think I could blame the wife because she's only just come in, but I don't think I don't think she did anything. <laughs> yeah. No more David Lucky Sedaris book club. Yeah. No, there's. Yeah. But you Lucky know, Santangelo I, I, was a big fat pot boiler right. about a, a sort of mafia type guy. And I read it in a single day. I, I was flying from Athens and I arrived too early to do it, you know, and I just sat in the airport and, and read an entire book. In one day. <laughs> and it was one of the best days of my life. I remember that. Oh, that's day. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there, yeah. There's something, uh, you know, there, there's something I think uh, people in the creative arts, they could stand in their own way when they have these really high uh, aspirations of, of greatness where, you know, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes what it comes down to is get the work out there and let's see if people like it. Um, mm. Where, you know, the, for one, the, the uh, I'm sure if Jackie Collins knew that, you know, 
people were reading her book in one day. You know, I mean that that's something. Yeah, that 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 is that is something. You get you get value and you immerse yourself. And this is one of the reasons I like Audible actually, because you can get through a book in a day. I can now, which I really would struggle to do that just using my eyes. But if you put it on your headphones and you go out for mm-hmm. a long walk and you listen at double speed, you can actually you can absorb a book. And and there is something to be said for that. You know, not all novels obviously benefit from being sort of gulped down in that way but some mm. do uh, there's something it's like you know nobody would watch a movie over several weeks or something so uh there's there's something i mean we all love the the box set kind of binge weekend now so uh it's quite nice to read books in that way as well but as i say it it does for me it requires audible because uh otherwise i'm just always back skipping i'm mm. i'm paranoid i've missed something i don't feel i'm paying attention enough you know and uh quite dysfunctional on reading now which is a shame you know it's funny though i was just thinking as you were talking there about like let's get it out there i can't remember his name but you you referenced uh is it tim pool was that the guy or was it somebody else you referenced in your spike column about saturday night live some comedian oh, um, who had, uh, oh uh i i talked about uh kyle dunnigan and ryan long those are yeah oh, no, oh, they're, Tim, they're, Tim they're podcast Tim, guys uh, but there was yeah Tim that's Dillon. It. Yeah, Tim, Tim Dillon. Dillon. Yeah, yeah. Who had had a go at Saturday Night Live, and they were like, "Oh, you're just jealous." And you were saying he like makes over a hundred thousand a month now. On his Some, yeah, there was something like a hundred and ninety thousand dollars a month on Patreon. That means that uh, that uh, and for those for those of you who don't know, um, uh, Tim Dillon, uh, podcaster, stand up comedian, and in, in my piece, I, I have a, a little history with Tim. In that uh, when I uh, first started doing stand up comedy. Uh, I was probably like a year or two in. I did this show in Great Neck, Long Island at a fondue restaurant called Simply Fondue. And it was in the back of a fondue restaurant. Um, <laughs> no pay, uh, but I, I, I could get, you know, 15 minutes or so, which at that time was, I mean, yeah. I mean, even now is, is huge to be able to do that and to be performing in front of real people. And uh, that was the first time I saw Tim Dillon perform. And I think he had just started out and part of the, uh, what I write uh, in the column is that at the time, if you were to ask, you know, either me or Tim, you know, what does success look like? I'm sure that we would have said like, Oh, being on SNL. I mean, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, but now if you ask me what success looks like, Sure, being on SNL is definitely a success, but being Tim Dillon, having an audience, having devoted fans that are willing to support your work to the tune of $190,000 a month on top, of, on top of following you wherever you're performing live and you have yeah. them, you know, and, and they're devoted. There's That's, a new level of loyalty that people have. I mean, there are one or two comedians in the UK who've developed that online. There's a guy called Richard Herring who's been working on his online community for uh, well over a decade now and is well ahead of the curve on that, you know, but uh, it creates all kinds of different products, some live events that get recorded that they get advanced tickets to and so on. You have to be pretty smart, you know, and you have to work very hard. You also, of course, have to be talented. But if you are willing to do that, you achieve a degree of integration with your audience. I think, you know, no TV show ever. Well, I don't know. People used to have a huge amount of affection for the big stars of the 70s when there used to be like massive mainstream. We had people like Morecambe and Wise. I don't know if you heard of them. And uh, they were like a double act who performed on um, they'd be, you know, Sat, uh, Christmas Day, Morecambe and Wise specials are legendary in this country. More than half the population would, would tune in. They had viewing wow. figures of over half of the, you know, of the entire pool. Yeah, it was absolutely, they were absolutely huge. And they were very much part of the national fabric. 
there's nobody like that via TV now. There's nobody who has that level of of universal appeal. But the but the flip side is that you have some people who are, you know, to die for their king. Yeah, and and there's something too where there is there are so many successful people out there, right? That you don't know about, that I don't know about. <laughs> Where it, where people, you know, one of the one of the put downs that I that I think is probably one of the weakest that I see is when people are like, "Who are you? Who's this guy? Never heard of this guy before." And it's like, well, look, there are people, you know, today who have no idea who Paul McCartney is. I, you know, yeah, there, yeah. there are people who don't. Well, there are people who don't even know who the president was. You know, uh, you know, however many. Do you, years have, ago. you probably have a show. Uh, we have a show called University Challenge. I think there was a similar one in in America. I don't know if it's still. Uh, anyway, sure. it's, it's like a, it's very highbrow. You get four students versus four students representing their university, and the questions. I mean, the, the running joke is it's like ogle boggle woggle boggle, buzz <laughs> Aristotle, correct? You know, but uh, at least at least a third of the questions are scientific that we genuinely don't understand the question, let alone know what the answer is. But then every so often they'll go, um, "Okay, we're going to take a music round now. I just want you to tell me the name of this band, you know, and it'll be The Clash or The Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, and they don't know it. No clue. They don't yeah. know it. These kids are like, mm, I don't know, is, is that Bob Marley? What? That's what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> London Calling. It's not Bob Marley. <laughs> I think it literally was that. Oh, actually. my God. And, uh, and, yeah, and so you're exactly right. You know, people – I mean, they have an extraordinary breadth, these, these students. I'm not accusing them of being over-specialist at a young age, but you, everyone has blind spots now. And for me, I guess it would be those people who play video games for money on YouTube, you know. Yeah, I know of that, PewDiePie, that, that's but none of the world. others. Yeah, you know? That's yeah. a different world. Well, I remember of them. I, um, a couple of years ago, uh, my, my wife, uh, uh, we had like a big outing with um, – her parents, uh, my brother-in-law and, and his wife's parents, I think it was maybe like 10 or 12 of us. And um, they got tickets to see this comedian who I, I'd never heard of him before, uh, Michael McIntyre. I'd never right. heard of this guy before. Right. And it's at Radio City Music Hall, packed, sold out, never heard of this guy before. <laughs> he, he comes out and he does an hour, right? And then he has an intermission and then he does another hour. And then I think he went backstage. He got like a standing ovation, came out and did another 20 minutes. I'd never, wow. I'd never heard of Michael McIntyre before. And I had never seen a comedian do that to, to perform for basically like two and a half hours. And is kill. that unusual? Cause that, that isn't that in itself. Isn't that unusual in the UK? He, he is huge or at least yeah. he was, I think he's still pretty huge, but he has definitely become a bit of a game show host. Now. I always thought he was unfairly dismissed as being a little bit lightweight. He is, he's actually a very, very clever, astute comedian, but um, yeah, he, he did become huge out of nowhere, but it's interesting that he is in New York as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he he might do like a show once a year or something like that in right. uh, in, yeah. in New York. But but there, there's something too in of uh, you know watching him perform. Uh, you know, not, obviously not all of his jokes landed with me or, or whatever. No. But to appreciate somebody who knows how to 
perform, who's a professional, who's obviously yeah. has decades of this under under their belt. I think that's that's so important. And it he, maybe- he was quite interesting and unusual in the UK in that he was he was on the circuit for a while, by which you know it's a slightly different circuit, but you know playing twenty minute sets in clubs on a mixed bill or whatever, and and not really getting anywhere very fast and. A little bit unpopular because he always seemed to think that he was a bit bigger and better than everybody else, and he was going places, and he had mm. ambition and a manifest destiny. And we were like, okay, whatever, you know. <laughs> and then suddenly, and then he did. I don't know, did, just yeah. whoosh, just like in about the space of about two or three years, suddenly he was playing Wembley Stadium. It was extraordinary, wow. and um, yeah, uh, uh, he, he suddenly switched it on. He located the you know the fusion reactor in the in the in the heart of the whole thing. But yeah, yeah. brilliant extemporizer, very very good with the audience incredibly yep. uh kind of warm and and just like totally inoffensive which is what some people find a little bit suspicious but I, they, I find, that a, they find that offensive they find yeah. that offensive <laughs> exactly. that is, if you're inoffensive. <laughs> <laughs> well i remember uh some years back I, I when i was living in uh in california i drove down to uh san diego to do uh two shows and uh if anybody is ever looking to drive to san diego uh, don't drive on a Friday during rush hour because it takes around six hours to get there. Um, but on the show, the headliner was uh, he did like a juggling act. And I think he had some props and and, and that and that sort of thing. And uh, one of my biggest regrets is at the time being a little stuck up about what I thought comedy was. Yeah, and right. uh, he actually paid me a compliment. He said, "He said really great set. Yeah, really not really great set. He said uh, good set." Um, and I, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to be fair, and uh, and I, and I thanked him for that. And uh, I really regret not talking to him and not you know picking his brain and just um, because this is obviously a got people. He was headlining. People came mm-hmm. to see him. Yeah, and uh, I think I missed out on learning something, on getting some wisdom from somebody who's obviously been doing this for a, for a longer time. All because you know, all oh, the guy juggles, he does magic, he yeah, does a little yeah. bit of magic. And- there always was that little bit of snobbery about special acts. I personally have always liked them. In fact, I got into comedy more through going to watch people like that. There's there's a place called Covent Garden in London where they used to have the Piazza, which is probably a bit like Venice Beach or whatever, where you have just outdoor acts juggling and, and would have a 20 minute sort of routine, but maybe breathing fire or clubs or whatever. And I just love that stuff. I have like childlike wonder if somebody can, can, you know, manipulate physical objects with a degree of grace and, <laughs> and ingenuity. That, that's good right. enough for me. The other thing I love is voices. If people can do good impressions, oh, yeah. I don't really care how good the, the jokes are. If it sounds like the other person that it's meant to, I'm just like, Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> you know, yeah, you're communicating um, with demons. How did this? How did this happen? Exactly. You've taken their soul somehow. Yeah, yeah. Anything that I could never do, you know, I'm totally. I love it. Close up magic. I love close up magic. Mm. And and there are lots of people who are very snobby about magicians and think they're weird and it's just a manifestation of a spectrum disorder or something. But you know, I'm like, no, this is they 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 have the capacity to reintroduce childlike wonder into my life. That's mm-hmm. that's exactly what I want to happen more often. I, I there's a, a, a magician named Prakash uh and um uh he, he was doing a a, a double uh, a, a partner act with uh, this guy Matthew Holtzclaw and uh one night uh Prakash was working a room just doing like at a party doing close up magic. And he did this one, this one trick to me. And I looked at him and I said, Prakash, I know that this is magic. I know that I know that this is an illusion or a fake or a trick, but you're really scaring me right now. 
because <laughs> it was some it was just something where it was yeah. like this no this doesn't this doesn't feel this doesn't feel normal <laughs> it, the, the childlike wonder he gave me was childlike yeah, fear yeah. Of, of no the i've had i have yeah. had that as well well certainly where you just go there is there's a, a there's skill and and it's like it goes on a smooth ascent and then somehow it's broken and 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 now it's way up here somewhere which is way beyond what I can see how you can get from there to there to there through practice. Yeah, yeah. it's it's extraordinary stuff and I never know I never want to know how it's done. But uh, the only ones that annoy me are the ones like Darren Brown is a very, is a great entertainer. I don't know if you know him, but he does yeah, have this kind of habit of he, he's a British uh, magician and. I, I mean, I guess he works in that kind of pen and teller field, slightly kind of teasing you with like, this is how it's done, or these are the tricks we use. And those are not the tricks you use. You know, mm -hmm. he's telling you a load of lies about the tricks you <laughs> use. It's a further part of the act, which is, it's all show business. But I think don't you don't need to do that. You don't need to pretend that this is, this is the mind game you played and this is how you planted the idea in my head earlier to say the seven of clubs. It's not, that's not how you did it. You know, you've used traditional magic techniques. And and now you're presenting it as a sort of almost like a self-help book or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like this is how you understand a bit like it's a, a stand up show business version of thinking fast and slow or something. You know, you, you've kind of you're supposedly accessing some kind of understanding of the human psyche. And it isn't that it's, mm -hmm. it's accessing mechanisms that work rather than I think I can plant the idea of a certain kind of animal in your head suggestively yeah. by walking in a certain way you know but be, before we go i i, I um want to talk to you just about a little bit about something that, that i've been seeing a lot in in stand-up comedy is almost meta stand-up comedy where yeah. where the stand-up is talking about what they're doing on stage in particular if it comes up with uh uh matters of free speech or what you're allowed to joke about and all that and I uh, I can't wait to get to a point where comedians stop doing that and just do yeah, yeah. just do the yeah. work just do the material. Uh, I know that's where we are culturally, you know. And I, I whether in England or or in or in the U.S. Like, hey, I know we're not allowed to say this and blah blah blah. But man, I I, I want to just get away from that. There are two kinds of that, aren't there? There's the there's what sounds a little bit like a kind of right wing version of it from the way you discuss it, which is like kind of going, I, I, I guess I'm not allowed to say that anymore or whatever. Right. And then there's, I don't know if you ever, we have a guy called Stuart Lee, who's a very, very clever and, and, and gifted and has been very creative comedian for at least 25 years now. But um, he does a lot of that. Just he'll, when he makes a TV show, he does a bit to the audience and then he turns to the camera and goes, listen to that they're not laughing but they are clapping that means they agree with me you know and it's quite clever and it's a good commentary but it is a little bit tiring after a while you know and then yeah. and then there's that other stuff like uh uh did you see uh what's what's her name i always forgetting her name um tasmanian lesbian comic did a show called nanette yeah hannah gatsby i, I watched hannah both. gatsby yeah i watched yeah. both so, nanette and uh and Douglas, which was her uh, her second uh, one. Okay, I haven't seen Douglas, but in Nanette, she talks a lot about the co about comedy and w how she uses it to diffuse tension. But she's tired of doing that. She wants mm -hmm. other people to have to live with the tension that is created by her uh, sexuality or whatever. And I was thinking, that's I mean, it's an interesting like a uh, lecture, but that's not a stand up comedy set. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to see some stand up comedy, and instead, you're discussing 
the degree to which stand-up comedy failed to work for you as a therapy. And that's that's uh, not what I thought it was, you know. Yeah. So there's a kind of people trying to use it in different ways. But I think you're absolutely right that the best way to do it is just get people helpless with laughter. I mean, it, yeah. that's that's such a hard thing to do and such a worthwhile thing to do that to think you can be kind of arch and, and above all of that somehow by, by discussing it on stage, even as you're clearly trying to do it, but to sort of, I don't know, diffuse the tension created by your failure to manage it. Right. Yeah. And I, I watched both uh, specials uh, of hers that are on Netflix and the second one, Douglas is more comedy. It's more comedy than it, than it is lecture. She talks a little bit about Nanette, uh, but one of the one of the the problems that she has in this in Douglas is she basically opens up by letting the audience know what they will be seeing throughout for the rest of the set. You're going to hear a joke about this, and then I'm going to do this and do this and do this. Now, clever if you can pull it off, but you've let a, you've already let the audience in, you know, into let us know yeah. what we're going to see. And then when we get to it, well, it it, it just it, it 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 didn't really work, you know. There it, has it, to be some reason for that, doesn't there? Yeah. Otherwise, you have you've just transgressed a fairly basic rule. Of yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Like for for example, she she ends Doug. She, she let us know that Douglas is going to end with a joke about Louis C.K. and also a mic drop. And then right. we get then we get the joke about Louis C.K. that isn't very funny. And then we get an unearned mic drop and it's like, yeah. 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 I really, I mean, it's not for me, so I guess I wouldn't watch it, but if there's one thing I can live without it's knowing her opinion of Louis CK at this point, especially, <laughs> you know, yeah. Christ. I thought Louis CK was a brilliant comic for quite a while. And I was pretty disappointed with him, you know, when I heard what he'd been doing, but I wouldn't put it anywhere near the category of like, rape or, or or the kind of Weinstein sexual coercion if you want to get a part in this movie or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, I just yeah. felt sorry for him. Or something. <laughs> I don't know if that's – if I'm allowed to – I'm doing what you're saying now, but I don't know if that if, if that's a cancelable opinion. But it just made me feel a bit grubby on his behalf when he hadn't met him. The, but he had made some extraordinarily raw, vulnerable, exposing comedy about himself. This wasn't a guy who presented himself – you know, there's that very funny bit about Norm Macdonald does about uh, Cosby, isn't there, where people say, he's, you know, that bit where he says uh, people say the hypocrisy was the worst thing, you know, because he presented right. himself as this kind of like upstanding moral figure, a father figure for young black men. And, and it turns out, he, and he goes, I don't think that was the worst. I think the raping right. was the worst. The raping thing, yeah. was the worst. Yeah. yeah. But with Louis C.K., he's kind of like the reverse of that, if you see what I mean. He's mm -hmm. like, there's no hypocrisy there. <laughs> Yeah, He has been all but telling you that he's the kind of sad sack who would actually sit in the corner of a grungy dressing room backstage mm. at a comedy club and ask if people minded if he masturbated. I mean, that's he, his, there's no lower place for a human to put himself than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse well, the, the, the... I remember, I remember uh, however many years ago when the, uh, the article came out of the New York Times where it was going through uh, all the different um, uh, cases or, or the instances that, you know, Louis C.K. had with, with these women. And uh, I was reading it and I felt like, um, I don't, 
need to know this or it's not no. my place to know this. It seemed like it was very much between him and these women. And with some yeah. of them, he had made amends. And uh, more than anything, I think what came out of that was sort of this, this idea that the public needed to choose whether or not to forgive him. And yeah. it's like, that's not my place to forgive him. I have no, that's not, we don't have a relationship. Uh, I'm not one of his, you know, one of the women that this happened to, or, or that, you know, uh, so that, that was weird. It was very weird. You know, it's sort of this, it was a public shaming, but then people feeling as though they were entitled to uh, decide whether or not this man is forgiven for the sins that he committed. Uh, absolutely. And that's become a big feature of social media, but it already wasn't. But ever since, I guess, there's, it's just endlessly pushing that line now, isn't it? That we meet, everyone is involved in a great reckoning that will never end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have to find out where you are on the table of all of the humanity that has ever lived. <laughs> right. right. Well, uh, well, Simon, it's I want to. It's like when you're, have you ever, I don't know if you're ever on a Patreon. Uh, not sorry, Patreon Peloton, the uh, the the uh, online cycling sort of. I've never done it. Cycling. I don't think I don't think I can afford one. No, so. my wife like spent our entire budget for lockdown on one of these. <laughs> anyway, when you ride, you're in a you're in. Sometimes you're in a like a live cycle, and sometimes you're against like historical people who've ridden in that in that exercise thing. But there's there can be thousands of people on the leaderboard. So oh, wow. you've got a digital leaderboard and you're, you know, you're up and down and obviously out of, I'm sometimes racing against 14,000 people. And if I'm having a good day, I might be in the top 3000, you know, otherwise wow. <laughs> I think of social justice as a bit like that, you know, I'm like, on a good day. <laughs> I'm only in the, I'm only 3000, you know, right. <laughs> where my ranking is. Yeah. Or they're, they're coming for you or, or you're coming for them or. Yeah. Yeah. Something. These people below owe me, but I, I, I owe them, but right. uh, that will be a dispensation. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, Simon, I, I owe you um, for, uh, for doing this and for, for staying on. Um, I know it's a little uh, later where you are. Um, I really appreciated it. And um, for those of you uh, who are unfamiliar with Simon's work, it's Simon Evans. Uh, he's a comedian and he's a columnist at Spiked. Uh, please check him out on Twitter. That's where I think uh, he and I first found each other. And I'm, right. I'm never going to let him go. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure Luke very awesome. nice to meet you man thank you so much for listening to my podcast again please subscribe leave a five star review that would be lovely keep your eye out for my book my forthcoming book that joke isn't funny anymore and please sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com and if you want to support my work join the Lou Perez community on Locals that's theluperez.locals.com you'll get access to all my stuff before anybody else, as well as exclusive content, and of course, me. Be sure to support my sponsors, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use promo code LU for 25% off purchases over $75, and Black Organic Cold Brew. B-L-V-C-K-B-R-E-W.com. Promo code LU for free shipping. Free shipping. Okay. I'm going to keep that in.